This morning's word comes from Psalm 25. I'm going to read Psalm 25. Of David, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantingly treacherous. Make me to know your paths, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O God. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all of his troubles. You may be seated. Thank you again for having me. As Lauren mentioned, I was here a couple months ago. Um, I think when Seth was on vacation as well. <laughs> um, thank you for welcoming me and my family. It's a blessing to bring God's word to you this morning. As we read, we'll be in Psalm 25. Uh, maybe just a logistical comment. If you grabbed one of the, I think, purple or pink inserts, there's two questions on there. Um, and I just want to let you know, um, as you listen for the why, um, listen in my sermon for um, preserves. And when you see the word uh, how, listen for the word posture. Um, I, I gave Seth those two questions that I'd like to be answered, but in our main point, I hope you hear those two um, worked out in the sermon. And with that, I'm, I'm going to argue that the main point of this psalm is that waiting for the Lord preserves us and postures us to bring him the most glory in our present situation. To unpack that a little further, I believe this psalm models for us how to wait on the Lord during times of struggle, 
from external and internal battles with sin. Uh, Before we dive into the psalm, I think it would be helpful to to place this psalm in its historical and literary context. Uh, This may not be new for some of you, but the Hebrew Bible, or our Old Testament, was organized into three large sections. Um, You'll hear this language used even in the New Testament by some of the authors. Um, But that that three large section Old Testament was called the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The book of the Psalms fell into the section we know as the writings. And one of my uh, professors retitled these three three sections, I think, in a very helpful way. Um, The first is established in reference to the law. The Old Covenant then was enforced in referencing the prophets. And then the Old Covenant was enjoyed in reference to the writings. So we have the Old Covenant established in the law, we have the Old Covenant enforced with our prophets, and then we have the Old Covenant enjoyed in the writings. Now these are certainly broad brushstrokes to these very large uh, sections of of Scripture, but I believe they help us rightly interpret um, the passages and books that are found in each of these Old Testament sections. So the book of the Psalms fits into the writings section of the Hebrew canon, or our Old Testament. Or as we will see, the Psalms rightly displays how the Old Covenant was to be enjoyed by God's people. The writings section in the Hebrew canon helps us navigate redemptive history through the hearts, minds, and actions of the Israelites. If we've spent any time in Numbers or Judges or First and Second Kings, we learn very quickly that sin was pervasive, not just throughout the nations that surrounded Israel, but even in the midst of Israel. And most of us uh, probably think of King David when we think about the Psalms, and that's not wrong to some degree. But we also must not miss that these Psalms are a collection from songs or poems and prayers, laments from throughout Israel's history. For example, Psalm 90 is a psalm written from the time of Moses. Or Psalm 107, which reflects on the return from exile from Babylon or Persia, potentially written around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But what is probably most important for us to know about the Psalms is how the stage is set for us in Psalms 1 and 2. Psalm 1 holds up, most of us are familiar with this psalm, but Psalm 1 holds up the law of the Lord and the blessing that it brings those that meditate and delight in it. Psalm 1 builds a connection between God's law, man's happiness, and the promise of everlasting life for those that keep it. And then also in Psalm 2, we learn of God's anointed king that will possess the nations and all earthly powers will be subjected to God's anointed king and the security that is promised for those that take their refuge in him. So that was Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. And these first two psalms, um, I think commentators would agree, the first two psalms are like lenses that we should look at the rest of these psalms with God's righteous law and his righteous rule through his anointed king. 
Now, the Psalms, unlike narratives or prophecy or <laughs> genealogies or letters, provide us with the right language, theology, and response to a curse-filled world. The Psalms help us feel rightly about how God is working in our hearts and in this world. The Psalms give us right language to use when approaching God and how to better express our thoughts and emotions to God. And we know music and poetry have a unique way of doing this, of describing and unpacking the many layers of our thoughts and emotions. They do this by using metaphors and illustrations, storytelling, and many other literary devices to help articulate feelings and emotions that flow out of all of the different events and seasons that our hearts and minds go through as Christians. The book of Psalms gives us inspired and God-glorifying ways to express our heart to God in very raw and real ways that we can hold on to during all the highs and lows that this life will have for us. What a, what a gracious and glorious God we have that we serve that would give his people the right words and the right way to approach him. And when we're struggling with sin or with the sins that have been committed against us or the overflowing joy that comes from obedience, from his deliverance. God does not just want us to think rightly about him. The Psalms help us feel rightly about him. So the rest of the sermon is going to be organized by what I see as the seven promises in this psalm. Let me pray. Father, you are a, a glorious and gracious God. You, you, you've given us your word. You've spoken to us. But you also help us think rightly about you and, and feel rightly about the circumstances and situations that that we find ourselves in. As we dive further into your word this morning, be with our hearts. Um, reveal yourself to us in, in a new way through your word. May we learn better how to model um, as Christians, how to go through suffering, how to respond to distress and anxiety that this world has for us. We trust you this morning. Lord, Lord, use me this morning to, to bring your word to these people as you've brought it to me and to my heart this week in prep. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're going <clears> to, <throat> I believe this sermon is, is organized, or, or I, I should say the sermon's organized around seven promises, but these seven promises I see in our, in our psalm this morning. And I want to just point out what I see as the overall structure of the psalm first. The first seven verses are David's uh, prayer of lament to God concerning his current situation. It is then in verses 8 through 14 that the language changes from God, being referenced in the second person, focused to God in the third person. Notice that David addresses his prayer to God using you and your, but then in verse 8, the language changes to he and him and the Lord. And then in verse 16, the language moves back to first person, 
reference to David as he expresses his current experience of trouble and distress and how he would like the Lord to respond to his current situation. So I see three sections in the psalm. The first is verses 1 through 7. They're David's prayer for deliverance. And then in verses 8 through 14, we have Dave, uh, David worshiping God for who he is. And then in verses 15 through 22, David returns to his prayer for deliverance. And it was at, at this point in my sermon prep that I needed to make a decision. Do I work through the Psalms like I would Paul's letters, verse by verse and, and thought by thought, or try to maintain the, the emotion and the voice of the text by working through the text with a particular focus on the promises that I see David resting in during his time of distress. And to some degree, I, I hope to accomplish both, but I want to walk through this text and hold up the seven promises in, in this psalm that show how these promises preserve and posture us to bring God the most glory in the midst of our own present situations of distress. Uh, my hope in presenting the seven promises that I see here is that we would hold on to each of them when we encounter trouble and distress and the sin in our own lives. And for some here, you've had to work through some really hard things in life already. For others, you've had really hard things that you're working through right now. <laughs> and then for others, you haven't had many, but they could be coming. But when we do have these troubles and distresses, these promises will keep you. So the first promise I see in Psalm 25 is in verse 3. None who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. We don't precisely know at what point in <clears throat> David's life he wrote this psalm. Was it when he was being pursued by Paul? Or <laughs> pursued by Saul? Who had become jealous of David? Or was it when he was be later being pursued by his own son? who desired to take the kingdom from him and Solomon. <clears throat> as we know, as, as we all know, that David knows his enemies and the threat of harm is real from David's perspective. This is what we know from the text. <clears throat> David knows his enemies and the threat of harm is real. David's soul is downcast. His enemies are close and he needs hope. David turns his heart towards God and asks the Lord not to let his enemies exult over him. And the promise that he's holding on to is that none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. And maybe one example where we see this promise upheld in the life of David is when David was fleeing Saul. And while David and his men were hiding in the cave, some of you might recall this, this story, David had an opportunity to take out Saul. Saul went into the cave for a bathroom break. Didn't know David's men were in there. David cuts off a little corner of his garment, holds on to it, but spares Saul's life. So David had this opportunity to take matters into his own hands and bring an end to a man that was pursuing him. Not only this, 
But wouldn't David have been justified for taking Saul's life? Because just a few chapters before this, David had been anointed king. Yet David obeyed God's command to not lay a hand on God's anointed, and he trusted and waited for the Lord to make things right. And how many of us, when we're in trouble or distress, attempt to take things into our own hands? How, how many of us turn to our own resources and wisdom to bring resolution to our current struggles? How many of us turn our hearts first to the Lord and wait for his guidance? May we trust in the Lord in the midst of our troubles and wait for him to respond. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we have this promise to hold on to, that none who wait on the Lord shall be put to shame. Hear that, Christian. None who wait for the Lord will be put to shame. Look now at the second promise in, in Psalm, in this Psalm, verse 9. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Notice some posture language here. My main point this morning was waiting for the Lord preserves us and postures us to bring him the most glory in our present situation. Our posture while we're waiting on the Lord ought to be humility. Is, is that our tendency? As we face trouble and distress, do we remain humble? Do we turn to our own strength or our own gifts, our own resources, our own wisdom when we're struggling with an enemy or a relationship or the loss of a job? And if I may speak concerning my own heart, at times I find it tough to be humble in the midst of conflict, and I tend to get impatient, desiring for resolution. I must turn my heart to the Lord, trust in his timing and his resolution, and humble myself under his mighty hand. In verse 8, we see that the Lord is good and upright. If we are seeing our hearts rightly, in light of a good and upright God, we are forced to humble ourselves before God. The posture of one waiting for the Lord is humility. When we humble ourselves before God, his goodness and uprightness are more clearly seen in our situation. And God gets the glory when he fulfills his promises to us. I might add, God does not just get the glory from us when we praise him for his faithfulness. But he gets glory from displaying his righteousness against the unrighteous who have positioned themselves against God and his people. The third promise in verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Did you hear that? All the paths of the Lord are steadfast and faithful. When your soul is downcast because of the distress that you're in, you're trusting the Lord's steadfast love and faithfulness. I must admit my heart is not quick to see the Lord's hand in my troubles. This is why we have psalms like this to help us know how to pray and respond to God and our situation in righteousness. 
I find my heart slipping into a path that would get me out of trouble. Which, which path can I go that gets me out of this? I find myself trying to change direction or change course when trouble comes. The promise we have here is that all the paths of the Lord, not Grant's paths, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. When you are in distress or there seems to be no end in sight to the present trouble, are you able to see God's steadfast love for you and his faithfulness? We need not look any further than the cross of Christ. In the darkest hour of human history, namely the murder of the Son of God, God was on the throne orchestrating salvation for all who would believe. The greatest sin in history proved to be God's very means of salvation. The darkest hour of man's sin became God's greatest hour of redemption. The path to the cross was dark. Jesus was left by his closest friends, rejected by his people, and was denied justice from the governing authorities. Yet we read in Hebrews 12 too, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I hope you heard one other connection from this verse in Hebrews to our psalm. The cross was such a shameful way to die that it was forbidden for Roman citizens to be killed this way. It was sin and Satan's desire to bring shame to Jesus through the cross. Yet it was through the cross that, the sin, that sin and Satan are defeated. Just as verse 3 of our psalm promises, they shall be ashamed who are wantingly treacherous. Let us look at the fourth promise of Psalm 25, which is found in verse 12. The Lord will instruct the man that fears him. Think through this promise with me. David in this psalm is praying to the Lord for deliverance from his enemies. But we have David clinging to the promise that those who fear the Lord will receive instruction. David turns his fear of his enemies to fearing God. What a twist. David reminds his heart that fearing God is his only hope for receiving salvation from his current trouble. Is this our response? When we're afraid of the people around us or the situation we're in, do we recalibrate our fear? Does the fear of our present situation overtake what we should really be fearing? Let's back up a verse for just a minute, verse 11. When our enemy seems to be closing in, or the troubles in our life seem to be growing, do we turn our fear to God? Maybe another way for us to think about this biblical logic is this. At any moment in our life, should the threat of external sin or sins being committed against us be our greatest fear? I would argue from this text, the answer to this question is no. Our greatest fear should not be our present circumstances, but our position or posture before the Lord. In verse 11, David is reminded of his own sin and asks the Lord to pardon his guilt. 
We need this psalm to rightly teach our hearts to respond in the midst of fear, to look at a God who is, and to see our sin for what it is. Let me say that again. We need this psalm to rightly teach our hearts to respond in the midst of fear, to look at who God is, and see our sin for what it is. David turns his heart to God for forgiveness and repentance, even while his enemies are pursuing him and wishing to do him harm. What a rebuke this was from my heart as I was preparing this sermon. When, when people rise up against me, I feel my heart wanting to justify my actions or my, or my righteousness over theirs. My heart is inclined to, to rest in my own righteousness or security and not in the reality that I'm a sinner just as my enemy is. Oh, how quickly bitterness and anger and self-righteousness leaves the heart when we see our hearts for what they are in light of who God is. So our posture while we're in distress should be a tone of should be one of confession and repentance. Our greatest enemy is, is not out there. It's the sin that's living in us. And listen to Jesus' words from Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. As the enemy creeps towards us, May we creep towards God in a posture of repentance and humility because we know that God is steadfast and faithful to instruct the humble and we will not be put to shame. This brings us to the fifth promise in this psalm found in verse 13. His soul shall abide in well-being. When we fear God above all else, Repent from our sin when it is revealed to us. Remain humble. Turn to the Lord for instruction. Our soul will abide in well-being. Hear this. Even in the midst of great distress and trouble, we can hold on to the promise that our soul will be in well-being. What a promise this is. Our soul does not need to remain downcast. David prays in verse 1 for his soul to be lifted up. We receive the promise in verse 13 here that our soul shall abide in well-being when we are trusting the Lord, leaning on his wisdom and instruction, remaining humble, and confessing our sin. Our hearts get heavy and, and downcast when things don't go our way or when other people's hearts turn against us. But we have this promise in Psalm 25 that our hearts do not need to remain downcast in the midst of trouble. We can turn to the Lord and receive the rest our soul needs when we trust in God and his promise of faithfulness and steadfastness, no matter what the situation looks like to us. And I'd like to stop here for just a minute. If there's anyone here that does not fear the Lord and their soul is not resting in the salvation that is offered in Jesus turn to Christ turn to him now the promise we have already observed and the promises we have yet to get to 
are for those that are in covenant relationship with Jesus. We can't hold on to these promises if we're not in covenant with God. And Jesus' death on the cross fulfills all of God's promises for us when we're trusting alone in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and Him as the only hope of salvation we can hold tightly then to the promises here in Psalm 25. The sixth promise for us in Psalm 25 is found in verse 13. His offspring shall inherit the land. You might be saying, how is this a promise for the new covenant believer? Let's answer who is his offspring, who, who, who this is re referring to. And I believe his offspring is referring to those who fear the Lord and his children. We must not miss the allusion to the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 17. Let me read that. This is God to Abraham. And I will establish my covenant between you, between me and you and your offspring after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Notice that the covenant that God gives to Abraham, Genesis 17, includes his offspring and the land. As we return to our psalm, God's promise of Abraham's offspring inheriting the land is being fulfilled, as, as David is recalling this. David himself is resting in the promise that God gave to Abraham thousands of years prior to his reign. We do see in verse 10 that God shows himself faithful and steadfast in love towards those that keep his covenant testimonies. God does require obedience from us as we hold on to these promises. So how is the promise of our offspring inheriting the land a promise that new covenant believers can hold on to? I'd like to first argue how offspring in the new covenant is not exclusively a biological relationship. We read in Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 29 that in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. You see what Paul did here in Galatians? Believers are heirs of Abraham and heirs of God through faith. It is not through the physical seed of man that are the true offspring of Abraham. True offspring of Abraham and God are determined through faith in Jesus. Now let me say it this way. According to Galatians 3, Jesus is the offspring to which God ultimately intended to secure all of his blessings in. Therefore, I take this promise to mean that those that are heirs with Christ, those that have faith in Jesus, are the true offspring of God. But what about the land? <laughs> what about the land? 
It's expensive these days. <laughs> In one sense, the land should be understood as the place that God's people inhabit, the place that God meets with his people, and the place where God's rule is established and enjoyed. It's the place where right worship happens. David is holding on to the promise that his covenant faithfulness will prove an inheritance for his offspring. So in the new covenant, Jesus's faithfulness secured our inheritance in heaven. So the land promise was secured in Christ once Christ came. And Jesus inaugurated the new covenant and the new land promise for those trusting in Christ, which is the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation chapter 21. The promised offspring to Abraham and David that would sit on the throne forever is Christ. And it is through Christ that God gave him all things. At the end of time, Jesus will return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth, such that we will inherit the land that Christ has purchased by his blood and brought us all into through his death and resurrection. Let's turn to Psalm 25 for the final promise that David is clinging to. Verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. When we fear the Lord, we are promised the Lord's friendship. And put yourself in David's shoes for a minute. Put yourself in a dangerous situation. What would bring relief? What would help your anxiety or your depression in the midst of such great trouble? How about an ally? How about a friend? What a glorious promise this is, that God would reach out in friendship as we're going through a great struggle. What makes this promise even more comforting is that this is not just a friend that's going to listen and sit with you. There's grace in that, certainly but is unable to make any changes to the situation. This is a friend that created the universe and spoke everything into existence. This is a friend that put to death the Egyptian army without the Israelites lifting a finger or destroying the walls of Jericho with the blasts of trumpets. This is no ordinary friendship. This is a friendship with the creator and sustainer of all things. Waiting for the Lord preserves us and postures us to bring him the most glory in our present situation. And according to this psalm and these promises, we're called to wait on the Lord in humility, fear, covenant faithfulness, and confession. When the sins of this world encroach upon us and our posture looks like humility, fear of God, obedience, and confession, we make God look glorious. When we fear God over man, we display his demands on our life and the value we place on pleasing him over and against the rulers and authorities of this earth. When we confess our sins, we recognize that our greatest need is not physical deliverance, but spiritual deliverance. 
This minimizes the control and the threats of man, that man can have in our hearts. And we are free to love and obey God above all else. Notice in verse 21 here as we close. That integrity and uprightness in the midst of trouble preserves us as we wait for God. So the call this morning for us from Psalm 25 is to seek the Lord in the midst of trouble. Trust in his covenant promises and his faithfulness. And he will instruct us in the way that we should go. As we enjoy his friendship along the paths that he leads us. And embrace the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. Which will be fully enjoyed in the new heavens and the new earth. Let me pray. Father, may you bring these promises to mind when we find our hearts in distress, when we find the enemy creeping in on us. Father, may, may we be a people that is quick to repent in the midst of distress from our sin. May we humble ourselves. May we see you as a friend that is there to care for us, that has the best in mind for us. May we calm our minds and hearts in a desire to escape. May we wait patiently for your deliverance, which you promise. And you also promise we will not be put to shame. Christ took that shame for us on the cross. May we look further to Christ in how he has secured, purchased, bought all of these promises for us. And we look forward to the time when all of the all of our tears and struggles and pain will be wiped away and we can enjoy true and unhindered fellowship with Christ, with the rest of believers from history in the new heavens and the new earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Your benediction comes this morning from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, which has been predestined according to the promise of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You're dismissed.